Welcome to the Endpoints Podcast, presented by the ALS Therapy Development Institute. I'm Jonathan Gang. When we talk about ALS, we often make a distinction between two types of the disease. 90% of cases appear to be sporadic, meaning that there is no family history of ALS. The opposite is true of the other 10%, known as familial or genetic ALS. In these cases, the disease can sometimes be traced back in a family for generations. Behind this phenomenon are a number of inherited mutations in genes with names like SOD1, FUS, and C9ORF72. With the advent of widely available genetic testing, people with a family history of ALS are now able to find out if they carry these mutations and are thus likely to develop the disease. When Jean Swidler was a child, she lost her grandmother to ALS. Then, as an adult, her mother was diagnosed with the disease. Finally, Jean herself underwent genetic testing and discovered that she carries the C9ORF72 repeat expansion mutation. Since then, Jean has become a tireless advocate for asymptomatic carriers of ALS-related genetic mutations. Today, she joins us to talk about her story, her advocacy, and how she believes the medical and research establishment could be better serving people in her situation. My mother following my grandmother's death. So I, I didn't, that's, that's all I knew. So my grandmother had had ALS. After that, my mother started talking about being anxious about getting ALS or thinking she had ALS for a long, or like being worried that she had it for a long time. And she would talk about it all the time and no one would, would uh, engage with her about it. Um, to me, you know, like we, I think certainly my dad and my siblings, you know, just thought it was like kind of this neurotic, unfounded fear, you know, worn out by a parent having a terrible disease. Um, and her siblings who knew the same thing she knew also didn't really engage with her about it. Um, so this went on for a long time. Like I remember uh, we got uh, married in 2016, me and my husband. And, you know, I we were having dinner with my parents and his parents. And it came up in that dinner conversation. <laughs> you know, she was just always talking about it. Uh, also in that uh, wedding, you know, in our wedding, um, my mom had trouble walking down the stairs to the ceremony because we were on a dock and there were stairs down to the dock and she had trouble with that. And she stepped on my dress as we were walking to the altar because <laughs> she was having a little trouble, uh, a little trouble lifting her legs. Um, but she thought it was arthritis. Uh, you know, she was in her late sixties by this point. So she thought this was arth arthritis. Jean's mother's symptoms continued to get worse, but Despite her family history of ALS, she struggled to convince her doctors and even her family of what she was sure of, that these could be the early signs of the same disease that killed her own mother. You know, all this time she's telling I have ALS, you know, to everyone. And what are we as her family telling her? What are we t saying to her? We are telling her, mom, the doctor said you don't have ALS. You know, why are you being neurotic? You know, like, why are you being so negative? ALS is terminal condition. They said you're not dying. 
Um, and so she continued to have to be alone in that sphere uh, while she was doing all of this. So I can't, I can't imagine the mental anguish that that was, you know, knowing that she had this terminal disease, no one believing her, probably some guilt, maybe, maybe internalizing what everyone else was telling her. Why are you being negative? You know, like, why are you being a downer? Um, all because we had complete faith in the medical field. <laughs> and then her hands started to not work and her voice started to slur. And finally, you know, she got referred back to a neurologist for another look at it. And this time, of course, they saw more nerve damage in the second EMG in more places. And uh, they diagnosed her with ALS. Um, I always remember, you know, I kind of knew she had a neurology appointment. And of course, in the lead up to it, you know, it's like, such a delicate balance, you know, like, I hope you get the answers you need. You know, I, 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 I think I knew that she had ALS at that point because she had been progressing, but I also didn't want to diagnose her or, or, uh, focus on something that maybe would be very hard to hear. So, you know, I was just trying well, I want to know what happens, you know, I hope it gives you the answers you're looking for. And uh, she called me after it and I was driving on a stretch of I-80 by the Bay Bridge that is notoriously poor reception. Uh, but I knew I couldn't tell her, like, let me call you back. So I, you know, was like, okay, what happened at the, at the neurologist? And she said, I got diagnosed with ALS. And she said in the saddest voice that I, that I've ever heard, you know, such a, I, I can't describe the tone, but she said, all I can think about is my mother in a lift over a commode at the breakfast table of my parents' house while my father wiped drool from her mouth and said, oh, look, she's smiling. I don't want that to happen to me. And I had nothing to say to her. You know, I couldn't say that that wouldn't happen to her. Um, yeah. Uh, and it dawned on me that that was probably the image in her mind all these decades was seeing her strong, her strong, reserved, dignified mother be in this position of indignity or, you know, perception of indignity and, you know, dependence. And that horrified her. And that was probably what she was thinking about when she was expressing anxiety about developing ALS. And, you know, she didn't want to bring it up until she finally got diagnosed. And on some level that might've felt a release. Like I can now, share with you the horror that I've been living with because now it's official. Jean's mother progressed quickly after her diagnosis. 
passing away in 2019. After her death, Jean decided to honor her legacy by participating in a study for people with family histories of ALS. When she was at Columbia and they found out they had C9, my siblings who had been with her for that appointment um, noted that Columbia was recruiting family members of uh, genetic ALS patients to participate in research to see what's going on before the disease happens. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to really engage while my mom was sick, but after she passed, um, I decided to contact them and go into their study. Uh, you know, I, I felt very proud about it. You know, my mom was a very civic person engaged in a lot of effort. She worked at the Nourishell Public Library as the head of the children's room for many, many years. Was a librarian for 40 years. Um, her funeral, you know, her wake and funeral, like over 200 people came. Uh, you know, politician, local politicians, all these people she touched from the library. She also li lived in the same city her whole life, basically. So uh, she had deep, deep connections to the community. So I thought I was really honoring her commitment to civic participation by becoming a research subject. Um, I decided not to find out my gene status in the first meeting because I was like, my mom just died. I'm probably not in a good place to make a decision like that. But I kind of knew I wanted to know. And I, I, I had the knowledge of my mother's intense anxiety for decades without genetic testing. So I knew that you could still be quite anxious without genetic testing. <laughs> you know, there's this uh, canard in the discourse that getting genetic testing to confirm you have the gene or not will make people nervous wrecks. And I already knew that really it's the knowledge that you're at risk, which is would trigger that not necessarily the the final narrowing down whether you actually have the gene or not. Um, and I realized I assumed I had it because I felt I took after my mom. And I, I, I knew then and I know that now that that's not very rational. It is very random. It's 50-50. And you could, you know, each each gene is, is random, which one you get from your parents. So, uh, but, uh, you know, I felt like I took after her. So um, I assumed I had it. And nine months later, I went back for a second visit and did choose for the genetic testing and, and discovered I carried the mutation. Um, and to be honest, you know, I don't feel like it totally rocked my world or anything like that, because I had assumed that I carried it prior to finding out. Um, and I do think that that's a very good defense mechanism for anyone. And, you know, when I encounter people online who are talking about this and they're saying things like, oh, I hope, I pray I don't have it. You know, I um, mentioned, you know, that might be a hard mindset if you are positive. <laughs> if you've been really putting all your bets on, you're going to be negative and it's positive, you know, that's not a nice uh, uh, thing to do to yourself. Um so um, after that, I started poking around in the online 
information about ALS. I uh, saw that there were Facebook groups for genetic ALS and C9, and I overcame some fears of genetic discrimination. So I got on these Facebook groups and, you know, I had noticed when I researched a bit about this, that there was nothing, nothing on the internet pointing towards people in our position. Everything was, if they mentioned this at all, was assuring people not in our position, how rare our position was and that they didn't need to worry about it. And I thought that was strange. Uh, it didn't seem right. Um, and it did seem like there was a lack of a voice for people in our position. Despite the lack of information on her situation online, Jean was able to connect through social media with other asymptomatic carriers. She found a growing community and others who, like her, could see that the status quo needed to change. So, um, so I finally worked up the courage to go into these Facebook groups. And I had an understanding that there was something not quite right with how our community was being uh, represented or uh, addressed, it, you know. And soon after I joined, uh, Daniel Barvin made a post in the Facebook group that said, hey guys, check out this uh, Huntington's Disease Youth Organization website. Look at it, it's amazing. Why don't we have anything like that? we should try to do something like this. And uh, I, you know, as this was an Huntington's Disease Youth Organization is a well-established nonprofit that speaks and serves the pre-symptomatic Huntington's disease community. And, uh, you know, this, this dovetailed with what I was thinking already. So I was like, yeah, let's do it. And a number of other people signed up uh, in this thread and said, yes, let's, let's go, let's do it. Um, I think we had a meeting or two, uh, just brainstorming some more um, around that time. Nadia Seti, who you know so well, uh, Dr. Seti, uh, said, hey, you know, IMALS does these volunteer teams you guys could hook up with, with IMALS. And we decided to do that. That was August 2020. Um, when we first started as a group, definitely our, our thoughts were geared towards creating content, making content available address to our community and education for our community. These were things that we were thinking about, but as we, uh, started speaking to some people in the field, it became clear that there were much more serious issues happening. We started meeting as a group, right? We started talking to some people in the field. Uh, and I started to realize that there were some things really troubling with what was happening. Um, for instance, in 2020, a group of ALS experts got together to talk about diagnostic standards for ALS. And it was called the gold, and they came up with a set of recommendations for what an ALS diagnosis should be. And they called it the Gold Coast Criteria. Um, I had found online the ALS Coriel revised criteria 
diagnostic standard for ALS from 2015. And I was pleased to see common sense was reflected in this 2015 document that said, if you had an ALS mutation, you had a, you needed a, you could have a lower bar of symptoms to be diagnosed. The 2020 Gold Coast criteria got rid of that and raised the bar for genetic mutation carriers. We connected with the wonderful Dr. Amar Al-Talabi, who uh, I so appreciate. He's very open and very communicative and actually has been a big, uh, a big ally in the things that I've been trying to promulgate to the field. Um, but, you know, we didn't know each other that well then. He agreed to come talk to our group. And I asked him, I was like, what was the discussion? You know, there must have been a big debate to to raise the diagnostic bar for genetic mutation carriers. Uh, I can't I can't imagine the the drama that there must have been, you know, just a huge back and forth, you know, and I assume you had good reasons for doing this. And he told me it wasn't discussed. <laughs> and I was like, I saw that there were people from these ALS associations and stuff in the in the room. So there were patient advocates in the room and the patient advocates didn't make you talk about it. Uh, and he was like, no. Um, and that was like a light bulb moment for me. Like, wow, we need to be at the table. Our community needs a seat at the table. Um, and I'm not saying what the answer should have been, but it should have been discussed um, and debated. Uh, so that was very troubling. In addition to lobbying for better representation for asymptomatic carriers, Jean also began looking at the available data herself and made findings that would eventually be presented at prestigious ALS research conferences. I also started uh, realizing, you know, that, you know, people acted like the genetic ALS community was a bit of a mystery. You know, the, we, we don't know how many of these people are walking around um, and I realized that using some simple calculations, you could arrive at a rough estimate for how many people there are with these mutations. Um, taking the prevalence of the mutation in the disease, which for C9 is both ALS and FTD. So let's just say it's 10% for both, which is around what it is. Uh, but if it's 10% for both of the diseases, you can see the incidence for the disease each uh, each year. How many cases are being diagnosed of the ALS each year? How many cases are being diagnosed for FTD each year? And then taking that 10% of each, you can find the incidence of C9R72 ALS and C9R72 FTD. Um, further, uh, you know, hard work of uh, scientists has arrived at an average age of onset for C9 disease. And they've arrived, it's 58. So there's this number I came up, it came up to about 2000 in the US, 2000 cases of ALS or FTD from C9 carriers each year. So these 2000 people keep reappearing each year, you know, different people, obviously, but these 2000 cases keep showing up and, you know, assuming that the incidence numbers are hold and prevalence numbers are holding true, which for a genetic disease, you would kind of assume. Um, if we have the average age of onset, 
we can times that by the average, the annual incidence, and you can get a rough estimate for how many people there are, uh, because these people need to come from somewhere. So uh, doing that, you arrive at like 125,000 C9 carriers in the US. Um, now there's the issue of penetrance. The only published, the only peer reviewed published estimate is 100% with a note that, oh, it's probably 90%. Um, Dr. Al Chalabi did a preprint that came out in 2021 using a much more rigorous calculation that arrived at an overall 90% penetrance for C9 with ALS and FTD. Um, you know, other people have set out some other things. Um, it's certainly not firmly established, but assuming a 90% penetrance, meaning 10% of C9 carriers live to old age without, um, without expressing disease, uh, then the number of asymptomatic carriers rises to like 100 and 40,000 in the US. Um, so ALS is, and FTD are devastating diseases. If a cure for ALS or FTD were to appear before us, there would be compelling reason to give it to the, that entire asymptomatic population, um, which is like five times as many people with an ALS diagnosis are living at any time. And so, you know, like, people have not been thinking about it this way and it doesn't, you know, like doesn't really make sense. <laughs> um, so actually Dr. Al, I, I just kind of threw this out there on Twitter, like, Hey, you can do this. And Dr. Al Chalavi encouraged me to present it as a poster at the ALS M and D symposium. So he accepted my poster proposal. Uh, the abstract got published in the ALS FTD journal and I was able to present it at the, ALS MD symposium virtually. Um, around the same time, we decided to do a survey of our community about their desire for pre-symptomatic treatment. We got uh, 174 eligible responses and overwhelmingly people were like, yeah, we want pre-symptomatic treatment. Uh, and people said they were willing to hazard risks to get it. So rather than, you know, people guessing at what appropriate risk would be for people to access pre-symptomatic treatment. You know, we're trying to say, hey, listen to the patients about what risk they want to take um, and include, include our viewpoints in what care we want. Um, so that, that was cool. We presented the poster at the ALS M&D Alliance Allied Professional Forum in December. Um, also last year, I saw that the NIH ALS strategic plan was getting, uh, publicized by the NIH and it said community stakeholders were people diagnosed with ALS and caregivers. And I immediately emailed them and said, Hey, you know, you're missing that there's these hundreds of thousands of people at great risk of genetic ALS. Um, and to their credit, they immediately updated their, uh, you know, verbiage on who the stakeholders were and added ALS gene carriers to it. Jean's advocacy efforts have brought her to other important conferences and meetings. 
She served on the committee for the National Institute of Health's ALS strategic plan after campaigning for representation for asymptomatic carriers. There, she was able to successfully lobby to add language to the plan about early interventions for people with ALS-related genetic mutations. She also met a key collaborator who would help her organize her group of advocates as a nonprofit. Dr. Terry Hyman Patterson um, let me know who I who is my co-chair on the Quality of Life Working Group. Let me know that you know she you know, it was uh, appreciated things that I was talking about and that we could work with her nonprofit, uh, the ALS Hope Foundation. So, um, you know, she could, you know, sponsor us as a nonprofit uh, under their 501c3. So, uh, and of course, offering her mentorship as a leading expert in the field. Um, so we as the team, you know, who had just been uh, an informal volunteer team uh, unanimously decided to to do that. Um, and we named ourselves and Genetic ALS and FTD and The Legacy. And we've been uh, slowly ramping up our activities since uh, January. Um, we aim to provide support to people in our position because I don't want anyone to have to deal with this like my mom did, having no support while they struggle with this. We aim to educate and we've been having webinars. We had Dr. Aaron Bittler present a few days ago, Dr. Matt Disney a few weeks before that. Um, and we are continuing to, to have speakers who, who uh, touch on our issues uh, come, come and do webinars for us. We aim to support research. Um, currently on our website, we have the two poster presentations that we recently presented. And we also have a list of genetic ALS studies. Um, so people can see uh, where they can go if they want to be in longitudinal ALS research. Um, in addition to recruiting people for other studies, you know, uh, we are interested in continuing to, to look at other ways that we can lead our own research as people impacted. Um, working on some ideas for that right now. Uh, and big picture vision, you know, we'd love to look at having some kind of family tree depository, something like that, but that's certainly in the, in the planning stages, uh, far away from the implementation. Uh, and finally, and I think most importantly, we need to be advocates for our community. Um, we held a patient listening session with the FDA in January, where we had over 40 uh, FDA staff attend. Uh, we shared stories of eight uh, genetic ALS impacted people, including those impacted by C9RF72, SOD1, progranulin, TARDP. So we had a wide variety of experiences, FTD, ALS, and um, I think it was a strong presentation and the feedback from the FDA was wonderful. So we're, we're always looking to get our uh, viewpoints represented uh, when discussions about our care are happening. Um, and uh, yeah, we're just continuing to try to get more, more things, more things for our community <laughs> and, a, and a shot at beating these diseases. Um, 
because it's just common sense that the best time to treat neurodegeneration is as early as possible. And yet this has not been the strategy in ALS or FTD, despite ALS having multiple disease modifying medications. Um, so there's a real tension there that we need to help untangle. Um, I will say we are pleased uh, that our mentor and supporter, Dr. Terry Hyman Patterson, is working on something for her and other ALS experts to begin thinking about this stuff. Uh, and we appreciate that. Um, but uh, I don't think we can go back to a time where our views are not being heard. To learn more about Jean's work and get involved in her mission, you can visit the ALS Hope Foundation at alshf.org. Or you can reach out to geneticalsftd at gmail.com. There are currently no treatments to stop or reverse ALS, but the ALS Therapy Development Institute is working to change that. To learn more about ALS TDI and our research to end ALS, visit als.net. Thanks for listening.